Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. We're in a series at the moment that's called Pity the Fool, and it's all about wisdom. And we've been working our way through the book of Proverbs. But today I want to take us through uh, to 1 Kings chapter 9. This is an interesting portion of scripture in 1 Kings chapter 9 where a conversation takes place between God and Solomon. As we know, Solomon authored much of the books of wisdom in the Bible, much of Proverbs and other books of wisdom. And this is a conversation in 1 Kings chapter 9. And it reads like this. I'm reading from the ESV. Thank you for standing as we read scripture today. And as for you, if you will walk before me, someone say if. If. As David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then, someone say then. then. Then I will establish your royal throne of Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. If and then. If and then. Come on, say, if and then. If and then. If that's good for you, you can go ahead and take a seat right where you are, unless you don't like the person that you're next to, in which case you can find somewhere else to be. Just grab your stuff and you can move somewhere else. But if you're sitting down, that means that you like the person. If the person sat down right next to you, that means that they must like you. Good for you. You're around some good people here at Cornerstone Church. I get asked all the time about how old I am. I don't know if you get this question or not. I get asked this question all the time. I'm guessing if you're in your 60s and 70s, people probably are not asking you this question anymore. But I get asked this question all the time. I don't know why it is. I don't know if it's because when I shave, I look like I'm 12 years old still or, or what it is. But I get asked the question. People are like, is this guy 20 years old? Is he 30 years old? Is he 40 years old? Surely he's not 50 years old. I don't know how old this guy is. But to answer the question, uh, I am this many years old. I remember life before the internet. I'm that many years old. I remember having to choose between whether we wanted to use the landline or the internet, the landline or the internet. I remember when someone was online surfing the web and, uh, and then someone else would pick up the phone, you would have that screeching sound that would automatically disconnect that person from the internet. I'm that many years old. I remember those days. I remember when fax machines were still kind of a novelty and people didn't know how to use them. And, and I remember having to have a conversation with someone one day, uh, it, was, it was my mother, and, uh, and she was trying to put a piece of paper through a fax machine, and she would put the piece of paper in the top, and she would dial the digits on where she wanted the fax to be sent to, and then the paper came out the bottom, and she was confused about it, and so she put the paper back in the top, and she dialed the digits, and then the paper came back out the bottom, and I watched her do this, and I was like, Mom, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm trying to fax this sheet of paper, but it keeps on coming out the bottom. So, Mom, that's not how this thing works. She thought that the paper got rolled up tight and then sent down the line to wherever it was going. I'm that many years old that I remember having to teach people how to use fax machines. 
I remember having to wake up early on Saturday mornings. I don't know if this was the case in the States, but if I wanted to hear the latest music, I would wake up early on Saturday mornings and listen to the top 10 of whatever was out at the time. And we didn't have websites where we could learn about the lyrics of our favorite songs. And so I would record my favorite songs and then I would back it up on my videotape and I would play it line by line and write this thing down on a sheet of paper so that I could learn the lyrics to my favorite song. That's the way that we had to do it before we had Spotify and Apple Music and websites that we could go to. I remember having to sit in the passenger seat with my parents as they drove the car holding sheets of paper highlighted with a route on it as I tried to navigate them through the streets of Sydney. I remember having to do that before we had our phones that could tell us where to go. And there was no rerouting. It was just trying to figure it out as we went because once we went off course, I ran out of sheets of paper and I didn't know how else to get us back on track. I remember... I remember, so when Meredith and I first started dating, we did a lot of distance dating because of how our relationship was at the time. And so a lot of our relationship existed on, uh, by way of email. Email is how I dated my wife. This is before the days of iPhone. This is before iMessage. This is before FaceTime. This is before all of these ways that we're able to connect with each other today. This is how I got to know my wife. This is before, I remember moving with Meredith from MySpace to Facebook. Anyone else remember those days? Making the shift then into Instagram and everything else that's existed since then. I I remember those. I remember going to my grandma's house that has since passed, and she had a washing machine and a dryer. It wasn't so much a dryer. It was like you would take the wet clothes out of the washing machine and then there was almost like these two rolling pins that you would put the clothes through and then you had to crank your arm to get to kind of like try and get the water out of the clothes right this is what I remember I remember going to her house and she had one of those sewing machines that you wouldn't plug into the wall it had the little foot pedal on it right that the needle would go up and down when you would push your foot up and down this is the era that I grew up in I remember going down to the corner store, and when I didn't have enough money to buy the candy that I wanted as a child, the, the owner of the store said, that's fine, I know you, and I know where you live, and I know that you'll just come back and pay the bill, pay the balance at a later time. And so he let us take the candy because he knew that we would come back and pay it at a later date. This is the era that I grew up in. I remember when handshakes meant something. I remember when a handshake was more than just a greeting. I remember when a handshake was a symbol of a commitment to somebody. I remember when handshakes were were part of a deal or a bond or a pledge to somebody. And and shaking hands is this weird tradition that we have. It's this weird uh, custom in our culture where we shake hands. Unless you understand the history of where shaking hands has come from. Shaking hands now has all these different variations on it. Like you can have the classic business handshake, right? Or, or you can now uh, slap someone with an angled, right? angled handshake. Or maybe it's the angled handshake with the back slap. Or, or maybe someone's coming in for a hug and you haven't read the situation, right? I, I don't know if you get filled with social anxiety as well where you don't know the type of greeting that somebody wants. And so you put out a, a hand like you're ready to shake their hand, but they're actually coming in for a hug. And now you get squeezed because your hand has got put... And now they're hugging you, but you're not hugging them. And I don't know if you... 
I love watching handshakes go wrong. It's one of my favorite pastimes is watching across the room someone mess up a handshake. But handshakes are so focused on style now and less on commitment, less on the original meaning from where handshakes came from, and they're so different culturally. Here in the United States, they're different from one culture to the next, and they're different from one country to the next as well. In, in New Zealand, where I was born, we have a greeting where we push our forehead and our nose up to another person when we greet them. Their forehead and their nose comes into contact with my forehead and my nose, which seems weird, out of context, right? And if I walked up to you and tried to push my forehead up to your forehead and my nose up to your nose, you'd probably back up like this, like, what y'all trying to do? Until you understand the origin of this and where it came from. Where it comes from is the belief that when God created man and woman, he breathed life into them. And so every time, it's called a hongi in, in our tradition and in our belief. And so when we push our face up to another person, we are sharing a breath for a moment. And it's a reminder that God has breathed his life into all of us. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your status. God has created us all equal. And that's what we're remembering when I push my forehead up to your forehead. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to start doing a hungy here in Toledo, right? That's not going to happen because I understand that these things are different when we hug people. I think that a hungy is as, is as weird as a hug. I don't know who invented a hug, but like let's press our bodies together for a moment and then hold each other just for the right amount of time, right? The, traditions like this are weird unless you understand the origins of where they came from. A handshake became a handshake thousands of years ago when we were warring communities and we were warring tribes and I would open my hand to you as I would come toward you and I would show you that I have no weapon in my hand and you would show me that you have no weapon in your hand and then we would put our hands together as a way of showing each other that I mean you no harm. This was the commitment that I was making to you when I shook your hand, that I mean you no harm and you mean me no harm, and that I'm going to walk with you in peace and I'm going to walk with you in prosperity. It essentially was a truce. I'm agreeing now that I'm not going to bring any hurt or harm in your direction. This is what the original connection and commitment of a handshake was. And now the focus is more on the style, the focus is more on the moment of the handshake than the understanding of where the handshake came from and why we even have handshakes in the beginning. When I shook your hand, it was a commitment, I'm going to be praying for you. I'm praying for your prosperity, I'm praying for your breakthrough, I'm praying for your deliverance. This is what I'm believing for when I shake your hand. And now the focus is more on the style, right? Like, there's nothing worse than shaking the hand of somebody with a limp wrist when you shake their hand. Come on, everybody knows somebody with a limp handshake like this. There's, there's nothing worse than shaking a fish handshake like this, right? Dana Palmer has the best handshake in this church. I don't know if you've ever shaken her hand, but that's a hand that you want to shake. She has, and that's the, that's the hand of a businesswoman. That's the hand of a leader right there. Handshakes used to mean something. They used to be, handshakes used to be good for a deal. They used to hold some weight, but this generation has come of age seeing that no longer be the case. 
this generation has come of age seeing where handshakes no longer mean anything because they just backed out of and there's no evidence that they ever took place. This generation has come about in the age of Enron and, 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 and people that are, uh, that, are, that are taking advantage of other people, the, the Bernie Madoffs and Volkswagen and, and, and things like this and the 2007-2008 crash and people taking advantage of, of one another. This is the generation that we have come up in. This is the generation that we all live in today is when our commitments no longer mean anything because everybody lies. Everybody lies. Business people lie. Politicians lie. The only thing that's true in politics is that everybody lies. And then everybody defends their right to lie when they're caught in a lie, right? Everybody lies. So now you're in HR and you don't have to tell someone why you're rejecting their application. You can just make up the reason for why they weren't successful in getting a job. You just make that up. When you're an hourly employee and you're putting down how many hours that you've worked this week, you can round it up to the nearest hour and no one's really going to check because they trust you, but we can take advantage of the system. When you have kids of your own, you can lie to them about why you're not going to get them ice cream today, that the ice cream truck ran out of ice cream and it's not available anymore and it's just driving around like we do to our kids, just driving around playing music right now, but it doesn't actually have any ice cream on the inside of it. Everybody lies. I'm committed to believing that half of the people that have handicap and disabled signs inside their car are not actually handicapped or disabled, that they just want the best parking spot in the parking lot. Now, if you legitimately need it, that's one thing. On the other hand, everybody lies. This is the sad truth that I have come to accept today, that everybody lies, that when you're putting together your resume and applying for work, you can essentially create who you are and what you have done. That I'm the CEO of Ryburn Enterprise. What does that mean? It doesn't mean nothing. It doesn't mean nothing if you're not doing anything. That I'm a certified life coach. What does that even mean? Right, and so now everybody is alive. What it means is that you don't want to be a part of somebody else's team. What it means is that you want to function by yourself. What it means is that you want to be self-employed until you need somebody else. That's what it means. Everybody lies. And the church is not exempt from this either. We're not removed from this generation's issues because we've seen leader after leader and pastor after pastor and bishop after bishop walk into sin and walk into scandal and walk into issue. And we've seen church member after church member after church member put out of the church for asking legitimate questions that they have in doubt. And it leaves me with the question now of, is integrity even something that we are pursuing anymore? Is integrity even something that we want is it something that we want in society? Is it something that we want in the church? Is integrity something that God wants for us? Is integrity something that God calls us to? Because it's so easy to sin. It's never been, never, never been easier to sin. Never been easier to sin. Right? And so it doesn't matter what your issue is, whether it's lying, drinking too much, gambling. It doesn't matter what your issue is. It's never been easier to sin. 
right? And so if, if like, let me give you an example. If, if information comes to you and you just share that information along without verifying if that information is true, that's a problem. If it just confirms your internal bias and just makes you feel good, like it hits true on the inside of you, but you're not verifying if this information is true, that's not an integrous thing to do, right? If we're just sharing information, if we're just passing on information because it makes us feel good or because it's it's filled with gossip, that's not an integrous thing to do. And maybe, um, maybe I'm naive, but I believe that, that we used to be an integrous community. We used to be an integrous country. I believe that we used to have integrity in our society. And integrity doesn't mean that you never fail. It doesn't mean that you never sin. It doesn't mean that you never have issues. Integrity is not perfection. Integrity is shown in what you do when you fail. What you do when you fail. Integrity is not perfection, but integrity is completing the job that you said that you were going to do even when no one is watching. It is doing what you said that you were going to do even when no one is paying attention, when no one's checking up on you. That's when you have integrity, when you're doing what you say that you were going to do even when no one's paying attention. Integrity is absent of duplicity, and it's the opposite of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, uh, hypocrisy says, do as I say, but not as I do. Do as I say, but not as I do. That's what hypocrisy says. And so when your kids are shouting and messing up, hypocrisy says to shout at them and tell them to stop shouting. Right? If you're a parent, then you know that you've done this before. Stop shouting. That's a hypocritical thing to do because they're doing the same thing that you're doing. Integrity says, do as I say and do as I do. This is what integrity is. And it's not just about doing it in the moment. It's about doing it time and time again. It's about making choice after choice after choice that is good for the community and is good for you. This is what integrity is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says to do everything for the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. And we often understand this scripture to mean uh, excellence. Do everything that you do for the glory of God. And it refers to excellence. It does refer to excellence, but it also refers to integrity. Let everything that you do be for the glory of God. And so it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're now doing it for the glory of God. And so it doesn't matter whether someone is watching you or not. You're doing it for God's glory. It doesn't matter whether someone sees you or not, you're doing it for God's glory because God is omnipresent. And so whether someone is watching me or not, it doesn't have any bearing on whether I'm going to do it or not because I know that God is omnipresent. And so I'm going to do what I've been created to do. I'm going to do what I've been called to do because God has created me. God has created you to be a person of integrity. God has called us to be people of integrity. And so when I'm left with the choice on whether I'm going to fail or whether I'm going to cheat, I know that it's far more integrous to fail than to cheat. When you could cut corners or you could go the whole nine yards and do the job, we've got to remind ourselves that God didn't cut corners when he made you. God didn't cut corners when he created the universe. God doesn't cut corners. And so if God doesn't cut corners, then we shouldn't cut corners. 
If you're invited to do something, but you don't want to do that thing, the integrous thing to do would be to tell the person, thank you for the invitation, but I don't want to do that thing. Not to make up a reason why you cannot do that thing. Well, my dog's feeling sick, and so I can't show up to that. Just tell the person that you don't want to do it. That's the integrous thing to do. And so we're in this series right now called Pity the Fool, and it's all about wisdom, but it's also about integrity. When we read through the book of Proverbs, we see verse after verse talking about integrity. Integrity, having balanced scales and, and how to get ahead with integrity and how to live a successful life with integrity and how to journey with integrity and how to have integrity in your relationships. The book of Proverbs is filled with verses about integrity. And if you, do, uh, if you ever do like a, a word study on integrity and wisdom, you understand that these two words are almost synonymous. These words are closely linked. Like they're almost interchangeable, these words of wisdom and integrity. They go hand in hand. You cannot separate these two different things, especially when we read through the book of Proverbs. And it's so important for us to be talking about today because I think that we live in a world that says that every way is correct. Wisdom says, this is the way. And integrity says, now walk in it. We live in an era that, where we used to see everything as black and as white, and now everything's kind of vague and everything's kind of gray and we're unsure about what is right and what is wrong. Wisdom says this is the way. And integrity says walk in it. This is the difference between wisdom and integrity. Integrity is the application of the wisdom that God gives us in our lives. And so I want to just give you a couple of really practical examples of what integrity looks like. Integrity is having the guts to tell the truth even if it may hurt to do so. Integrity is not cheating even when you know that you're not going to get caught. Integrity is quoting the sources rather than plagiarizing. In quote, uh, integrity is showing up on time when you said that you would show up and finishing the job even when you don't want to do it. That's integrity. And if I take this spiritual for a moment, integrity is when we're fasting, which we do every year, Integrity is fulfilling the fast even when no one's paying attention. When we're doing a Daniel fast at the beginning of the year, whether you're doing a corporate fast with your church family or you're doing a fast by yourself because God has called you into it, integrity is completing that fast even when no one's paying attention. No one's tracking with you to see if you're going to the nearest drive through line. Integrity is saying that you're going to complete the fast even when no one's paying attention. Integrity is being committed to a generous life. It's being committed to tithing. I have no idea what your salary is. I have no idea what you make. I have no interest in what you make. I want you to be blessed and I want you to be favored, but I have no business knowing what your salary is. What you choose to give is between you and God. An integrous person has no issue with that. A person who lacks integrity is always trying to shortchange God, is always trying to round down, is always trying to give less. And a person of integrity knows that ultimately everything came from God in the first place. 
And so as a person of integrity, I have no issue giving because I am a generous person because I know that ultimately everything came from God. And so all I'm doing is just returning back to God a portion of what he gave me in the first place. That's integrity. Integrity is returning things in a better condition than you found it. When someone lends something to you, return it in a better condition than how they gave it to you. My parents drilled this into me when I was younger. Whenever they lent their car to me, they ensured that I returned it washed and vacuumed and gassed up and a bow on it and a thank you in it. Thank you so... It just it, My parents drilled this into me. And I say this example because I have lent things to different people around the room and I'm still waiting for those things to be returned. And you know who you are. An integrous person would return that thing in a better condition than how you received it from me. You know who you are. Integrity permeates every aspect of our life. I heard this story recently about a guy named Jim who worked in uh, corporate America. He was an executive at a company. And he got called into his CEO's office one day, and this was alongside a whole bunch of other executives that got called into the room, and everyone's kind of standing there unsure about why they're there. And the CEO says to Jim and to everybody else, I'm getting ready to um, retire. I'm coming towards the end of my career, and I'm starting to now think about who I want to hand this business off to. And it's somebody who is here in the room right now. And the way that we're going to find out about who this person is, is I'm going to give everybody a seed. And I want you to take this seed, and I want you to plant this seed, and I want you to water this seed, and I want you to take care of this seed. And in 12 months' time, you're going to come back in, and we're going to evaluate everybody's growth of this seed. And then the person, and then I will choose the person that is going to be the next CEO at that time in 12 months' time. And so Jim takes his seat alongside everybody else, and he takes it home, and he comes up with a game plan with his wife, and they, they buy a pot, and they buy some, some potting mix, and they buy some fertilizer, and they plant this thing, and they water this thing, and Jim starts talking to this thing and encouraging this thing, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, and starts encouraging this thing to grow, and then nothing happens. And he begins to water this thing and water this thing. And maybe he moves it around to a different window. He moves it outside, hoping that that's going to change the situation. And then he goes into the workplace a couple weeks later, and people are starting to talk about how their seed has now sprouted. And Jim knows that at home, his pot is filled with dirt and no plant. And he goes home, and he's frustrated, and he's telling his wife about all the stories that he's hearing at work. And he goes back into the office, and he knows that he's got nothing but a pot of dirt in it. And he starts hearing the stories from all of his colleagues and all of these other people about plants that are starting to grow and flowers that are starting to bloom and, and all these things that are now happening. And days and days and days go by, and weeks go by, and months go by, and nothing is grown in Jim's pot. Twelve months go by. Nothing has grown. And the CEO has now called all the senior executives back into his office, and he wants them to bring in their pot of what has grown. And Jim doesn't want to bring it in. He says to his wife, I don't want to bring this in. This is embarrassing. I'm ashamed of this. My CEO, my boss gave me something to do, and I couldn't even do something as simple as grow a plant with the seed that he gave me. And his wife says, still bring it in. 
That's what the CEO has asked you to do. And so he brings it in and he stands in the corner of the room and he puts his pot right behind him so that the CEO can't see this thing because he's ashamed of it. And everybody else brings in their pots with these plants that are beautiful and strong and have grown and have bloomed and bring them and put them right on the table and they're so proud of themselves. And the CEO walks into the room and smiles and sees everybody's beautiful forest that has now grown before him. And he says, somebody in this room is getting ready to be the next CEO of this corporation. He looks over in the corner of the room and sees Jim standing there with his pot of dirt. He calls him up the front. Jim, come on up here. Jim, come up here. Jim doesn't want to do that. Jim, come on up here. Jim, come on up here. Jim grabs his pot, sheepishly walks past everybody. He can hear the whispers of everybody else calling him a failure. He can hear everybody making fun of him and accusations that he doesn't know what he's doing, making fun of. They're so proud of everything that they've achieved. He puts his pot of dirt down next to the CEO, ashamed of it. He's getting ready to apologize, and the CEO grabs him by the shoulder and says, Everybody, behold your new CEO. Twelve months ago, when I gave everybody a seed, I gave you seeds that were boiled. I gave you seeds that were dead. Your seed should not have been able to grow anything. I know that the seed that I gave you was swapped for another seed when you started getting frustrated that your seed was not growing. And what that tells me is that while you can grow a healthy seed, that you are not a person of integrity. And that is why Jim and his pot of dirt right here, this is all the evidence that I need that this is now the new CEO of our corporation. This is the example of what integrity looks like. It's being committed to doing the right thing whether you want to do it or not, whether it makes sense or not. And so I want to close with, with three ways that we can grow integrity. Three ways that we can grow integrity in our life. These are three things that you can do. If you're a note taker, write these things down. These are three really practical things. I wanted this to be a really practical message, not a bunch of shouting and, 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 and all of that. I just I want it to be really practical about what integrity looks like and how we can grow it in our community and in ourselves. First thing that we can do in building integrity is to cultivate an environment of humility. Cultivate an environment of humility. What this means is accountability. Create an environment where it's okay to admit your failure. Create an environment where you are encouraged to tell of your weakness. Create this environment around you. One of the first things that Meredith and I did when we were installed into this role in 2019 was that we put a board of advisors around us. A board of advisors that can speak into our marriage and can speak into our decisions and can speak into our lives. We have wisdom of our own and we have perspective of our own, but we don't have all of the wisdom that we could have. And so we want to get around people that are wise and have years beyond us and we can learn from and we can pull from. Get some accountability in your life. Find someone or some people that can speak into your life that you will receive from if you mess up. Create and cultivate an environment where it's okay for you to fail, an environment of humility. That's the first thing that you can do is allow people to speak into your life. If there's nobody speaking into your life, if you're not receiving counsel from anybody, it's going to be real hard for you to grow in integrity. That's the first thing. The second thing is fear God, not man. Fear God, not man. 
We need to get over our fear of man. You know what I mean by that? Our, um, our focus of being so concerned about what people think about us. We need to get over that. When you care more about what people think about you than what God thinks about you, it begins to be really difficult to walk in integrity. It makes me think of uh, the story of Job in the Bible. This is one of the other books of wisdom. And in Job chapter 2, there's a really interesting conversation that takes place between God and Satan. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and he is upright and he is a man of integrity. Have you considered him? And then what happens right after this is that essentially God gives Satan the okay to pretty much do whatever he wanted to Job except for to kill him. And so Satan walks in and he does exactly what Satan does and he starts to wipe out his children and wipe out his resources and wipe out his health and he attacks all of these different things. And then for like the next 30 chapters in the book of Job, there is this dialogue that takes place between Job and his friends and Job and his wife and all of his friends are saying, just give up your integrity. His very own wife says to him, give up your integrity, curse God and die. I don't know what kind of wife that is. <laughs> curse God and die is what she says to him. And Job refuses to do that. What does happen, though, is that Job begins to grow in this self-righteousness of like, I don't know why this is happening to me. I've never done wrong, and so I should have things go well for me. I don't know. I'm, I'm now a victim. I don't know why all of these things have happened. God must not know what he's doing. And then there's this beautiful display in Job chapter 38 where God speaks. And he begins to say, Job... Where were you when I separated light from darkness? Job, where were you when I cast the Pleiades and Orion into the sky? Job, where were you at the beginning? Job, are you able to call in the dawn and are you able to cast out light? Job, where were you when I did all of these things? Job, where were you when I separated the earth from the sky? Job, where were you? And in that moment... Job realizes that he has lost his fear of God and he has begun to focus more on man. And the story of Job is written and is a great reminder to us that bad things happen to good people. Just because someone has tough things happening to them doesn't mean that they've done bad, doesn't mean that they deserve those things. In the same way that just because you're blessed doesn't mean that you deserve those things because it can all be gone in a moment. And so the question is, are you going to pursue God even when times are hard, even if you were to lose everything, even if you were to lose your children, even if you were to lose your health, are you still going to pursue God or will you curse him and die? Fear God, not man. The third thing that I think that you can do is to be resolute. To be resolute. What I mean by this is that Meredith and I are so convicted about this platform and this influence that we have that it cannot be bought, that there is um, no person that could come along and could buy this platform from us. 
We're so, this is not Amway, this is not Mary Kay, there's no insurance deal that we can promote to you that we're going to receive a private kickback from. We're so convicted about the, about the purity of this platform here that we are resolute in it. There's no politician, business person deal that could come along that we could benefit from, that we would promote to you like it was good if we're receiving something behind the scenes. You have our commitment in that. We care about this position and this office too much. We stand on the shoulders of our incredible founding pastors that have never dirtied that. We stand here today resolute in the office and the assignment that we're in today. I care about this so much because when leaders lack integrity, it invites everyone else to lower their bar. And I think that that's part of the issue with society that we see today is that we've got presidents that are going to do whatever. And so I can now do that because this president has done this. And we've got business people that have done this. And so now because they have done this, I can do this. And we've got pastors that have done this. And so because they do this to their spouse, I can do that to my spouse. Because they did this to their children, because they did this in this business deal, then I can do that now as well. When a leader lacks integrity, it invites everyone to lower the bar. And this is why I'm so committed to being resolute. And I want to be the same person up here that I am down there. I want to be the same person out here that I am back there. I want to be the same person back there that I am in my home. I want to be the same person no matter where I am. And God has called us all to be the same person on a Sunday and on a Monday. God has called you to be the same person here at 1520 Reynolds Road or joining on a God has called you to be a person of integrity no matter where you are. It doesn't matter who is watching you. It doesn't matter if someone isn't watching you. God has called you to be a person of integrity. What's really interesting about the word integrity is that in the Old Testament, integrity is understood, it's translated to mean blameless, without blemish. This is what it means in the Old Testament. This is what it is translated to, without fault. It's interesting that in the New Testament, there's no word for integrity. The closest that we can get to the word integrity is truth and love. The Old Testament is all about hundreds and hundreds of laws that we are required to fulfill. Over 600 laws that you are required to fulfill to be blameless and spotless and upright. The New Testament isn't about that. The New Testament is all about integrity. The New Testament is all about Jesus. When you walk in integrity, you have no need for rules. When you walk in integrity, you have no need for laws. When you pursue Jesus, you don't need to pursue laws. When you pursue Jesus, you don't need to focus on laws. When you follow after Jesus, you don't need to follow after laws because Jesus is the embodiment of integrity. And so when you pursue after love, when you pursue after Jesus, when you pursue after integrity, you're able to sleep at night. If you find that night after night you're unable to sleep, pursue Jesus. When you pursue after Jesus, your children will be drawn to you. When you pursue after Jesus, 
deals and doors will become open to you when you pursue after Jesus. And this is what I believe that God has for us today. This is my prayer for us today, that, that in the same way that God made a covenant, made a commitment to Solomon, when he said, if you live a life of integrity, then I will walk with you always. I believe that this is what God is calling us to today as well. That when we live a life of integrity, that God would walk with us. This is his commitment, that God would always walk with us. And I believe that God wants this community to be a community of believers where our handshake means something, where where a handshake is not just about the style and it's not just about the moment, but, but a handshake means like, a handshake means I mean you no harm. I mean you no harm. I mean you no harm. I mean you no, a handshake, a handshake means I'm committed to walking with you. It means I'm committed to journeying. It means that I'm committed to praying for you. It means I'm committed to walking this thing out. This is what we're committed to. This is what I believe that God is calling us to, to be a community where our handshake means something. And, and, and our kids are in this season, they're in this age of like um, a pinky promises. You remember pinky promises? It's not about that because my kids will say like, oh, I'm going to do this and then they don't do it. Well, I didn't pinky promise, Dad. Like that means something. It's not about that. Scripture is clear. Yes, you, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'm not saying that there's a difference between my verbal commitment and my handshake commitment. I'm just saying let our yes be yes and our no be no. Let's be people of integrity here. Let Cornerstone Church be known as a community of people that if you shake their hand, that it means something. Where if you get a deal from somebody, if they make a verbal commitment, then they're going to follow through on it. Not just as an organization, but individually. That the people of Cornerstone Church, that we are an integrous people. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray in this moment? How many are committed today to being a people of integrity? Come on, that's so good. God, I'm so thankful that you have called us to be a people of integrity. I'm so thankful that you are the embodiment of integrity. And we want to be a people of integrity because you have shown us how it is possible. And so we're committed to it afresh and anew today, God. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is available to show us the right way to walk in and to give us the courage and the strength to walk in it. God, we're committed anew today to be people of integrity when times are good and when times are bad, when times make sense and when they don't make sense. We're committed to being a people of integrity. God, I want to be an integrous person. I want to have the reputation of being a person of integrity. God, show us the right way to walk and we'll walk in it. We're thankful that you have called us to it and that you give us the strength to do it. And it's in your awesome, mighty, matchless name that everybody prays and believes. Amen? Amen. Amen.